Men like to impress the ladies of their dream. Is that true? One lady would agree with that. The others are going, I'm still waiting for that. I've never seen any evidence, Pastor Rob, that that's true. Well, we'd like to impress them. And so when we impress them, uh, especially when we're dating them and trying to trick them into, I mean, get them to marry us or like us, we'll do things like well, we might buy them things. And what we buy them is not shoddy stuff, crummy stuff, flea market stuff, I hope, right? So we're going, it worked for me. I, I know it shouldn't work for you. We get them maybe perfume, nice perfume that smells good. Maybe get them a nice necklace. Flowers is kind of a common thing, but a lot of ladies love flowers. Know what I've never seen? Never seen a guy hand the girl of his dreams like a handful of worms. I'm sure it's been done. I've just never seen it. I've never seen a guy hand a girl maybe a handful of caterpillars because they'll be beautiful someday. Just give them some caterpillars. Never witnessed a man down on one knee proposing who opened the box to reveal uh, a lump of coal. Just says, honey, I, I couldn't wait for you. I did put a bow on it, so it's nice. And the truth is, one day, under pressure of, and trials, this could be a diamond. But for now, because we don't have much money, here you go, will you marry me? I already know the answer to that question if you give him a lump of coal. It's not going to be good. And I so have never, ever seen that. I've never seen one, and, and you may think this is weird they didn't bring it up, so just hang with me. I've never seen anybody proposing to open the box to reveal a stringy, emaciated blind baby bird. Is there anything uglier than like a, a, a baby bird just stringing barely alive and just say, hurry, honey, uh, uh, yes or no, will you marry me? This thing's only got a couple hours to live. Wait a minute, just hurry. But you know, all those things become something that I've seen. Here's a couple more. Um, I've never seen anybody hand a, a lady like a, a handful of seeds and just go, you know, I, I planted something for you, but I couldn't wait. So around six days into this thing, I dug them up, and they look like they're kind of half dead, and there was some green starting to come out of them. So you get the picture. In fact, these seeds were for roses. They're really nice, but I don't want to wait. Life is short. Here you go. Here's some seeds. That's just something that I've, I've never seen. I hope I never see it. I never did that. It wasn't that dumb. Sweetie pie, our time is now. So I dug these up. Go for it. It's pretty obvious why. Anybody know why? I'll take a little sip. You tell me why you've never seen that. This is the interactive portion of our program, by the way. You tell me why you've never seen that. It's two words. They're ugly, right? I mean, all those things are ugly. They're hideous. They're half dead, if not dead. Uh, they're broken. They don't work. But listen, gang, curiously, many of these things are exactly what we give to show love at different stages, exactly what we choose to show beauty at different stages. Things are incredibly ugly. The seed that grows into a rose bush provides the very number one gift of Valentine's Day, a dozen roses. I mean, those roses didn't always look like that. Sometimes they look like seeds and, I mean, well, not sometimes, always. They come from the rose bush. The butterfly that used to be an ugly caterpillar is now taking over. You know, it used to be when I went to weddings when I was young, 100 years ago, and you'd go to weddings, you'd see people throw rice. There's probably a reason for that. I'm not sure what it is, but... That has been replaced in recent years where people will box up butterflies. Everybody, who's been to a wedding where they release butterflies? That's kind of cool. And raise your hand if you've ever been to a wedding where they release butterflies. Some of you have. Some, raise your hand if you've ever been to a wedding. Okay, there you are. Did you go to your own? I mean, if you, do people get out? Well, now they are, that's replacing, you know, just as a thing of beauty, throwing rice. It's not hard to see why. Rice is not that beautiful, but letting butterflies out, letting doves out, things like that, that's 
That's beautiful. <clears throat> that emaciated, there's a, I saw a picture of a baby bird this last week. I was trying to see what the ugliest kind was. Turns out one of the ugliest baby birds is one of the most beautiful birds when it grows up. Uh, it's like a macaw, something like that. It becomes a, uh, a, um, like a parakeet, a beautiful multicolored, not like a parakeet, it would be a parakeet or macaw. Uh, beautiful rainbow-like colors on this bird, but just hideous. Like the movie Aliens with Sigourney Weaver, you know, just something to, just with that liquid and that stuff coming out, one of the ugliest things, but becomes something absolutely beautiful. And then there's the lump of coal. Nobody would give a lump of coal. In fact, when we get to Christmas time, we tell our kids, if you're bad, that's what Santa Claus is going to bring you, sticks or a lump of coal. But under pressure, a lump of coal becomes, well, ladies, raise your left hand. Married ladies, raise that left hand. I'm willing to bet 95% of you have a former lump of coal on that left hand. I mean, that's what it was. Under pressure and a lot of time, that is pressed into a diamond. I heard some mumbling, by the way. Some of you go, I'm still waiting for the diamond. I got a, a, a ring, it's empty, he promised. That's another sermon in another series, a marriage series, later. That's not today. You guys work that one out. Uh, I want you to write this down. It's very short. I kept just a couple of points really short, but they're life-changing. This is the first one. This is what I found out. Beauty is a process. That's the first thing. This is what you, if you really just take a microscope and, and, and look at beauty, if you really get out of the 30,000 foot view and zoom in on beautiful things in life, you'll realize they didn't just pop in that way. Beauty is a process. And we really have to get this because it's key to living life to the fullest. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, the evil one came to steal and to kill and destroy. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to break things down. He wants to make things not function the way they're supposed to. He wants to take beauty and turn it back into ashes. He wants to steal life from you. He wants to destroy everything good about you. But I came, ready? I'm opposite, Jesus said. I came for a different reason. I came to not just bring you life, but to bring life to the fullest, overflowing. Now, if you want to live that kind of life, then this is key you got to realize there's a process, it's sort of a valley that you're going to have to go through before you're going to get to that mountaintop. When we grasp this, then we won't recoil. Here's one of the great things about it. We won't recoil in horror at every little discomfort or pain in life. In fact, only in America, you know, I think when sometimes when people from other countries see Americans and, and look at our life, we look at some of the things we do and go, I mean, they're just so afraid of every little discomfort in America. Seriously, go there, check them out. They fight for comfort. They fight for ease. They want everything they want. They want it now. They want it perfect. And there's nothing wrong with vacations and comfortable times, but when you try to make heaven on earth, it doesn't work. You know why? Yeah, I mean, anybody want to guess why? This isn't heaven. That's why it doesn't work. Is that a shock to you? This is earth. That's why it works like earth. In fact, this is a fallen earth because of sin. And if you try to make it into something that it's not without any kind of process, to turn the ashes and the brokenness into beauty. It's not going to work. So I can't really imagine a more frustrating life than to try to force something that has no chance, that has no chance of working. Now, I didn't say it can't happen. It just can't happen that way. And if you want to make it happen that way, if you want to make life happen that way, then the slightest pains that come along, even small inconveniences, they're going to derail you. They're going to crush you. They're going to throw your life off. But if you know Jesus' way, and if you know that brokenness leads to beauty, and if you'll let him take the pain for you, like he did on the cross, if you really get this, then even being crushed 
in big trials, even when the most painful things that could possibly happen in this life come our way, instead of being crushed by them, we can actually grow more beautiful through trials as a child of God through the brokenness of life. In fact, that's the only way that we can grow more beautiful through a trial. Otherwise, things that come to destroy us, destroy us. That's what they do. Only Jesus can take all things, good, bad, ugly, all things, and bring good out of it. No matter what he has to work with, even if it's nothing, he can bring good out of it. So here's what I want to do for the next few moments. It's a little bit different. Don't know if we've ever done this. And I've got a cliff here, so I'm going to walk around here. Here's what I want. Kids, nine, 10, and younger, down to say three. Can you guys come forward? I have a theory that kids will get this better than adults will. And listen, if you're if your parents are scared of you coming forward, can you take those big people that you brought with them if they're uncomfortable? Bring them with you if you have to. Sometimes you guys, you kids are fine, but your parents are frightened of these little things. So go ahead and bring them down with you. I got a story that I want to share with you. Well, I was going to say down there, but yeah, that works. Yeah, it's even, no, no, come here. I like it. I like it, man. You are sharp. You led the way. You're a leader in the making. All right. You know what you can do? I'll tell you what. Keep, keep on. Some of you are hiding behind the speaker. Come on. What you can do is, see this carpet right here? Just pile, just sit down. Everybody just sit down. I got a story I'm going to tell you. Come on. File in here. You guys can sit down. Don't worry about the expensive, uh, irreplaceable musical equipment. It's no big deal. It's not mine. <laughs> so, guys, your parents aren't always going to get this. I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know, we become cynical, we, you know, but when we're young, we have big faith and we really get things. You guys, if you want to come in close, you can, or, or, or it's fine, you can even go right there. So there's another point. Remember what I said, that, that beauty um, comes from brokenness. Beauty comes from brokenness. Beauty is a process, all right? You guys got that, right? Before something's beautiful, something has to take place. Sometimes you have to go through trials. Sometimes you got to go through pain before something gets easy, right? Like sometimes you got to practice a sport, right, guys, before you get good at it. You know that, right? Or... Sometimes, girls, you got to practice things before you get it. Same thing, right? It's a process before you get what you want. So I want to tell you a little story. I actually got off the internet. I wish it was mine, but it's not. So listen up, and I think you'll see this process in this story. I think you'll hear it. You guys with me? Yeah. You with me? Yeah. You again. You're a leader. I'm telling you. All right. It's called The Caterpillar and the Worm. There once was a lovely patch of flowers. All right? It gets better. That many a butterfly would visit to lay eggs and that would one day the future generation of butterflies would be there. And so it was a popular place for these butterflies and these caterpillars to come. Now, mind you, these butterflies were gorgeous creatures, some of the most beautiful butterflies ever on earth, full of color and with great big wings. A very pretty butterfly like their kind was in a big hurry and quickly sat up on a single flower, lay in the midst of the patch, and she laid her eggs and just as quickly left as butterflies do. This one just didn't have time for the process, so this butterfly came, laid eggs, and said, I don't have time, gotta go. Don't care about the process. A few days later, the newly hatched caterpillars, they rose up quickly and began doing what they do. And what does a caterpillar do right when they hatch? You, man, you again? A prodigy in the making. You're right, they just, they're on a leaf and they eat the leaf. Because they, they need a lot of strength and they need a lot of food for what? They got a pretty broken time in their life. They've got a painful time in their life. They've got a thing they're going to go through where they're just going to be twisted and changed and morph into, you know, they're going to build a little house. They're going to build a, well, for lack of a better, a cocoon. You guys have seen that, right? Yeah. 
A cocoon? Hey, we, don't we have some cocoon things, Jan, are you in here? We've got these little fans, these little cocoon things. I'd like to bring them up front if we could. And if somebody could grab them, we're using those for the kids. And I see Lisa back there. They're probably by the door. There's a whole bag of them. And I want to give those to the kids right now. So they're bringing them in. Sometimes it helps if you have a picture of those, okay? So a few days later, newly hatched caterpillars, they rose up quickly, began doing what they do. And you guys got it right. They began eating so they could grow at a fast pace. And they did to become one day as beautiful as the butterflies that they saw. You with me? It's not a hard story. One day, one of the caterpillars came upon a very unsightly worm, okay? They've got their own little area, beautiful caterpillars, you know, as beautiful as caterpillars could be, but now a worm is crashing the party, and the worm is ugly and slimy and gross, and it's hanging out there, and they don't want it there. Would you want it there? No. No is the right answer. Well, the guys are saying yes. Girls are saying no. Wow, and whoever says guys and girls aren't different, they're crazy. So the caterpillar asked the worm, with no ill intention, as young ones often do, you know how young people, they'll just say what they say? Can I give you an example? I mean, who here is five? Anybody five years old? Six? All right, five. Okay, so listen, it, sometimes kids, and, and don't raise your hand on this, but sometimes, you know how kids, they see something like, maybe you see somebody that's got a huge nose or something. I mean, it's just like you to go, hey, how come you have a big nose, right? Or you'll point at them and go, you have a big nose. I want you to know they're probably aware of that. Okay, like, or you ever walk up to someone and go, how come you're so fat? I mean, sometimes people do that. Or why are you so skinny? You know, I mean, we just point out the obvious. Listen, we don't mean it bad, right? We're learning. We're kids, we're growing and we're learning. So we like to point out the obvious. But sometimes it's not that nice. Sometimes people really don't want that pointed out. And that's not the intention of this. Um, do we have that? Did we find the little bag of stuff? Bring those up and give them to the kids. Actually, we should have a bunch of them, not just one. They're what? And where are their bags? They do. Are your bags in your, at your seats? Oh, some of you brought them up. You are sharp. You're, now we have two prodigies. Well, I wanted you to kind of to use these as we go, but you know, you kids are smarter than I am um, because this is in the shape of a little cocoon. All right? So I'm going to have my prodigy. You wait. Don't open it now, okay? And then it's going to be coming at just the right time. And this is in their little bag of tricks too. All right. So the caterpillar asked the worm with no ill intention. All right, right here's what he's going to ask him. He's going to the worm who has feelings too. And he goes, listen, I just want to ask you a question. Why are you so ugly? Why are you so ugly? And look around. Can you see that we're good looking caterpillars? Do you have to hang out with us being so ugly? To this, the worm replied, well, I was made this way. But just like you, I do have a purpose in life. And I do have a nature that was given to me, and I'll use it someday. I'm just glad that I'm alive, and I'm thankful to do the things that I do. That's a good answer, by the way. Now, the young one was intrigued by the answer, and being so young, did not fully understand that the, what the worm had said. But nevertheless, he befriended him, okay? The worm, the caterpillar that seemed kind of mean, he's like, well, maybe, maybe this worm's nice. And so they're hanging out, and they're becoming friends. And he'd regularly seek his company. And as the days went by, he was always respectful of this much older, much wiser being, the slimy worm. Never once did he even ask about his ugliness again. He only asked that one time, but he never brought it up. He was just glad for his friendship. Stay with me, guys. Now, nearby, another young caterpillar snickered and laughed at the sight of this ugly worm. He didn't get it. He goes, I don't know why you're being friends with him. He hasn't gotten any better. He's still ugly. I'm not going to hang with him. So in a loud, disrespectful voice, he said, you are so ugly that no one would ever think you have a purpose. 
You don't have a purpose. Here's your purpose, to be ugly. You're just ugly. Why don't you leave the rest of us beautiful caterpillars since your ugliness is so offensive? It's just bothering us. Can you leave? Isn't that mean? I just think that's mean. No other caterpillar paid attention to the ugly worm, and most found him offensive, and they kept away from him, of course, with the exception of the one that had befriended him. Remember that guy? So here's what happened, gang. Some weeks later, when all the caterpillars had turned into cat cocoons, got your cocoon? Just keep it as a cocoon. Before their reincarnation into beautiful butterflies, a swarm of ants invaded that huge, beautiful flower and quickly began to devour the newly made cocoons. Are you getting the picture here? They're all safe in their cocoons, and these ants that love to feed on cocoons are eating the cocoons. Guys, you love this, right? Girls, that's gross. All right, but here's what happened. Some weeks later, when all the caterpillars had turned it in, into them there was only, and, and were being eaten, there was only one cocoon left, the one who had befriended the ugly worm. For you see, this particular worm had a purpose. Here it is, guys. The worm's purpose was he ate ants for a living. That's what he did. That was his purpose. That's why he had chosen this single flower, and his ugliness was a way of mimicking the dark and ugly coloration around this particular kind of ant species so that they wouldn't even notice him. So he blended in. The ants never saw him. Day in and day out, he kept watch on his friend's cocoon, and he kept the hungry ants away from that cocoon. Upon his transformation, the newly hatched butterfly asked his ugly friend as to the whereabouts of his brother and sister caterpillars. Where are they? Being told what had happened and why he survived, he decided to share his story with every other butterfly he ever came upon. Soon afterwards, whenever you saw a group of caterpillars feeding on their favorite flower, you would always see them alongside an ugly worm. But now, instead of being offended by his ugliness, all the butterflies everywhere welcomed this worm. So here's what I want to say to you kids. Isn't it strange how something that dies, something that was once ugly, all those things I mentioned earlier, isn't it strange how ugly things can actually become beautiful? That's just one of God's very cool things that he does that shows his power, how he can take something that most of us can look at and just go, that's just ugly. So open it up now, and this is in your bag, and how something like that can become useful. It just looks like sticks. Now it's a fan. And I'll tell you this, I'm hot, so now you kids will not be hot. You can kind of, uh, I wasn't saying I'm hot in that way. I'm just hot. It's hot in here. And all right, hey, kids. I got one more point for you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell not only the first point, okay, that beauty's a process. You remember that, right? Can you remember beauty's a process? And can you remember this one thing? For the next 20 minutes, remember this. Brokenness has its purpose. Say that back to me. Brokenness has its purpose. Now your parents are going to forget that in five seconds. All right? You remember that all the way to th through the end of the service. Brokenness has its purpose. Thanks, guys. Everybody sit down. We're going to continue on. Give them a round of applause. They hung in there pretty good. One of them's like, is that a true story? Sort of. Sort of a true story. So beauty is a process and brokenness has its purpose. There's a verse that some find offensive in scripture. I call it the worth it verse. Because if you really look at it, you can get through this thing, get over the offense. This is really worth it. It's Romans 8.18. Paul said this. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing at all with the glory that is be revealed to us in heaven one day. Now, why is that offensive to some people, do you think? Well, because some people are going through pretty bad times. 
Some people have suffered loss that's incredibly painful. And to hear somebody sort of belittle it, it sounds that way anyway. Well, listen, that's nothing. Heaven will be great one day. Sounds a little trite, doesn't it? But when it comes from somebody like this, Paul, who was taken out and had rocks thrown at his head and, and left for dead twice, was beaten three times, the limit of 39 lashes, which killed a lot of men. That happened several times to him. It didn't kill him. He was shipwrecked twice. One time he's out there all night, all day, out in the open sea in the storm and survived, bitten by a poisonous snake. I can go on and on and on. And yet he said, it's not worthy to be compared. It's not worthy to be compared. Now you might say, well then, he's just, there's something wrong in his thinking. No, there's one other thing you ought to know about Paul. Paul's the only one that I know of in Scripture that was caught up to the third heaven. Do you know what that means? That means all his suffering, and Jesus said, I'm going to do something for you that I don't do for most people. I am going to let you see heaven. I'm taking you up there. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to let you see what it's like. And when Paul said that, he then said these words. So he's got some credibility, right? He's got some credibility. He was there. He saw it. And he just said, even what I've gone through, I, I, I have joy. I'm... I'm going to set foot on heaven's shores and forget all my suffering like that. That's how awesome it is. So one thing you got to know about that verse, please don't get offended by it because it's not an apples to apples comparison. It's not like God is saying through Paul, listen, your suffering down here is nothing compared to how I'll suffer for how I'll make you suffer up there. It's not the same thing. He's saying as bad as it gets, take the biggest example of suffering you know of, as much as that hurts, It'll vanish because that's earthly pain. But heavenly joy that is eternal and earthly compared to earthly pain that is temporal, it'll fade away. I promise you that. It'll go away and you'll never remember it. He's not belittling our pain. What he's doing is he's sort of cupping our little chins in his hand and trying to refocus us. Don't look at that, God's saying. Look over here. Life will be much better for you if you focus shift here. God be one of the greatest challenges God ever has. Trying to get us to shift our focus from the here and now to what awaits us in eternity for those that know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It was hard then. It was hard with the disciples. It hasn't gotten much better. In fact, if you take the disciples, I don't know how you get a better picture of God than Jesus Christ, and you're on a 24-7 camping trip with him for three years. In fact, you hear him preach to the masses and unpack a story and do miracles to back it up. And then when the crowds disperse, you get there with Jesus at, at night or when everybody's there and you sit down and he gives you the cliff notes. I mean, he does talk soup, the smaller version of it, and goes over it again. And you've had that over and over and over again. How can you not get it? How can you not get it? In fact, one time, about two years into the ministry, Jesus is traveling with his 12 disciples. They've seen all kinds of miracles. They've seen all kinds of teaching. It's been pounded into their head why he came, who he is, what he's going to do. And they sit down and they have lunch and Jesus asks them this question. He says, in fact, it's found in Matthew 16. I'll read it to you. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So they're sitting there munching on their Chick-fil-A and he goes, hey, hey guys, we're about two years into this thing. Can I ask you something? What's the word on the street? Who are people, and the son of man is how he referred to himself a lot. Who are people saying I am? And you know the sad thing about this gang, it seemed to catch the disciples, you can tell if you keep on reading here, off guard. Oh, oh, oh I haven't thought of this. Uh, so they start scrambling for answers. And they said, um, some say John the Baptist, which is a poor answer because John the Baptist was beheaded about a year before this. He's dead. So that's really not a good answer. But that's what people were saying. Hey, hey, others are saying Elijah, another dead guy. 
coming back to life. Some said Jeremiah, same thing. Or, or one of the other prophets, or a new prophet, or something like that. And then he said to, to, to the rest of them, he looked at all of them, he, you can just see Jesus pausing, and he said, okay, but who do you say I am? Because we've been together, morning, noon, and night. You've heard the stories in front of the big crowd. You've seen them walk away. You've stuck with me. I've given you the cliff notes. You've seen the miracles. You've asked me any question you want. And I've actually told you point blank several times. So I just need to ask you, is this working? Are you getting it? Who do you say I am? And they just sat there. They just sat there. I'm sure that bothered Jesus. How am I going to get through? Listen, listen, it bothers pastors. It bothers me. I've felt this. I've said things. I've pounded things in. I've been into ministry more than 25 years, and I've said things over and over again. Like the two points I just gave the kids, I guarantee most of them remember it. And some of you are already going, oh, man, it's gone, gone, gone. I can't remember it. Can't remember two. I can't remember one of them. What was that? Something about ashes and beauty, broken beauty, ashes. Some, I don't, but it's already gone. Why? How does that happen? I remember years ago, I was preaching and we were talking about how good God is. And I did this thing and, it, and I just started getting people to repeat it. It said, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. You know, it's just a simple little thing. And I said it over and over again. And then they said it with me. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Can we try that? I mean, this is what happened. God is good all the time, all the time. All right, so I waited a week. We did it. We didn't do it that much, maybe 700 times in, in one service. Then I come back the next week, and I'm feeling really good about my people here. And uh, I'm like, we, we got back into talking about, we're going through a whole passage about how good our divine Lord is. Our God is good, isn't he? Not just some of the time, but all the time. So remember this. God is good all the time, all the time. And I went like that. Blank stairs. Just, just blank stairs. They're looking at me. You can see people scrambling um, all the time. All the time the sun comes up. All the time God's never bad. Uh, I was like, you forgot that? We went over it. And, and in fact, it's childishly simple. Childishly simple. And I thought, what is it about things like that? Even simple things, truths about God that is so hard to pound into our frontal lobe. And if you think it's hard to get into our brain, you got to see how hard it is to get 18 inches lower into our heart. Oh, it, humanly speaking, it's impossible. It takes the Holy Spirit to move it from here to here. It, it, in fact, it's the biggest miracle in all of Scripture is when somebody is born again. And that's when this information makes it to your heart. And you receive Jesus as your Savior and you're transformed. And listen, there are times when Jesus said this besides this time to his disciples, things that he pounded home and, and then he asked them about it and they're like, like you never said, I don't think you mentioned that. I don't think we went over this. And he's saying, have I not been with you? Have we really not gone over this? Gang, it's not like Jesus hadn't. Here's a couple of examples of how he went over. I'll just give you a few real quick. John 5, 25, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. Who? The son of God. Who am I? The son of God. And those who hear will live. Another time he's talking, it's also found in the Gospel of John 8, 58 through 59. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now everybody there, you know who picked up on that right away? Jesus' enemies. As soon as he said that, they picked up rocks to stone him because they wanted to kill him because they said, you're a mere man and you just said you're God. So listen, if our enemies pick up on it like that, then we ought to, if we say we love God. We ought to, we ought to be able to figure out and remember what he's saying. 
In fact, right there it said, at this time, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. John 10, 36. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I just said I'm the Son of God. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Luke 3, 21 through 22. Early on, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came out from heaven. It was his Father, and he said about Jesus, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So I, I just want you guys to get this. It's not like Jesus didn't say anything. You read the Gospels, and many of you are going through the Gospels in 40 days, and it should be wrapped up now. Then you heard Jesus say not only who he was over and over and over again, but exactly what he came to do. He said, here's my mission. Here's my mission put another way. Here's my mission put yet another way. Here's my mission illustrated through a miracle over and over and over again. They didn't get it. There's many, many others I could have showed you. It's kind of sad, I think, that his enemies picked up on it right away, right away. But we who claim to be followers of Jesus, many times we accuse him of not caring. You don't care, Jesus. You don't, you don't speak to me. I don't feel you. Don't, I don't hear you. You're not saying anything. But those who hate him the most pick up on his every word. It ought not to be that way, right? It ought not to be that way. And, and gang, I got a challenge for you. Does this indict us a little bit? Isn't this kind of an indictment? Or at the very least, whether we like it or not, doesn't it kind of reveal our hearts? You know how sometimes somebody will just call us out? You know anybody like that in your life? They'll just call you out and they'll nail it and you're going, wow, I can't say anything. You just stripped me. You just revealed everything bare. You just saw my soul. I can't even argue. You nailed me. Those people are obnoxious, huh? I mean, it's hard to be around that because they just have discernment. I mean, what's the problem here, gang? Because here we are at another Easter. And we got all kinds of different ages in this room today. So some of you have been to many Easters. Some of you have only been to a few. But you're hearing the Easter message, the greatest story ever told. Nobody for the first time except young Oliver Rutherford. This is his first one, I'm thinking. But I think he's not even in here. He's back in the nursery. So you're hearing it over and over again. A few weeks ago, if you go to Impact Church, I told you there was a man on the street interview that was done that kind of is going to prove my point. You're going to drive it home. And some of you didn't believe me that this was really done. An interview at American University, a leading political university for those who aspire to be young politicians one day. And students were asked to name just one U.S. senator. One. Here are the results. Take a look. Hey everybody, I'm Dan Joseph with MRC TV. Today, I'm on the campus of American University. I'm gonna be asking the students here some political questions and maybe I'll throw in a pop culture question too just to sort of throw them off guard. Let's see how they do. Can you name one person currently serving in the United States Senate? Of the Senate? Um, uh, sad. I'm in a politics course. So uh oh, <laughs> not a very good one. Can you name one person currently serving in the United States Senate? Um, God, this is bad. I'm gonna take a guess. Please take a guess. I don't even know. Is Nancy Pelosi? No, she's speaking to the house. No, I can't. All right, that, that's okay. Can you name one person currently serving in the United States Senate? No. Nobody? I won't even. What? I can try and say 
out of politics. Yeah, so. me too. Probably good. Can you name one person currently serving in the U.S. Senate? Uh. Congressman John Rayers. I don't know, actually. Take a guess. Isn't Bernie Frank one? Bernie Frank? There's only one Frank. Bernie in the Senate. Bernie... Oh, you're Bernie thinking of Barney Frank. Barney Frank. No, he's a congressman. He, a congressman. he was not a congressman anymore. All right. Uh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> now I'm having now. Rand Paul. Rand Paul, that's right. Can you name one person currently serving in the United States Senate? No. No. Do you know how many senators each state has? Um, senators each state. Um, 12 or 13. I think 12. Which one? 12 or 13? 12. Um, uh, no. no. Do you know how many senators each state has? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. Five? Two. Two. I know. Uh, it, it goes to show how much I don't know. <laughs> it, you were only off by ten, though. Do you know how many senators each state has? No. There are a hundred. How many states are there? You're cheating. <laughs> and there are a hundred senators. Right. Right. But you don't know any. No. Okay. <laughs> Alright, okay. I'm not big into the whole... America thing. Ameri Ameri right. Yeah, I'm not big into the American <laughs> Okay, there are two from every state. I was gonna say... Well, that's alright. What is the name of the hit song from the movie, Frozen? Let It Go? You got it. That's on the radio, but you Let know what go. song I'm talking about. Let yeah. It Go, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm so sick of that song. Alright. Let It Go. I mean, you nailed that one. What is the name of the hit song from the movie, Frozen? Let It Go. Let It Go. <laughs> what is the name of the hit song uh -huh. from the movie, Frozen? Let It Go. Let it go. <laughs> I'll let it go. That's right. It's the name of the hit song from the movie Frozen. Let it go. That's right. You <laughs> slapped a kid the other day because he was singing that song. Now the cops are after. All right, guys, I promise you that was not Baghdad University where they filmed that. That's American University. One person, I think, accidentally got it. Rand Paul. Yes. Oh, I got one. How many senators are there? 100. How many of them missed the theme song to the movie Frozen question? None. In fact, they got it really fast. So here's the point I'm trying to pound home, and the beatings will continue until we get it. The point is this. We don't really have much wrong with our memory. We can remember stuff. We can get stuff. We can retain it. And some of you aren't going to like this, and you're going to think it's accusatory. But if you get this, it's worth it for those of you that get over the hurdle. We remember what we want to remember. We hear what we want to hear. I remember growing up, my parents would try to get me to memorize a, a verse in scripture or I'd go somewhere and they'd try to do that. I just found it so hard. But then I was really convicted that I could remember all the words to Gilligan's Island. Theme song. So I've got that going for me. I mean, useless information. Things that I had that, were, that I couldn't even not remember. I couldn't forget if I tried. But I couldn't remember things that, that I said mattered greatly to me. I mean, what should we conclude from this? Maybe that their political science teacher just missed that part. Never taught them about Congress. And then there's the House, the Senate, the President, Vice President. Maybe he didn't go over that the whole year. What are the chances of that? Uh, zero. I mean, the chances that they didn't hear senators' names probably every single day in certain classes, zero. Of course they heard it. The students just really didn't care. It didn't stick because they didn't think it was relevant to their lives. In fact, one of them said, I'm not really into the whole, uh, and he helped her out, America thing. Yeah, I guess not. What are you into then? Because one day it's going to matter. There's a lot of people in our country, a lot of people that wear the moniker Christian, I'm a Christian, that are going to stand before God one day and hear these words, and it's not going to be good. They're going to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Ah, but I know a lot of information about you, Jesus. I can, I can recite things. Give me a chance. Yeah, but I don't personally know you. We never connected. I loved you. I chased you. I spoke to you. I died for you. And I rose for you. And I conquered death. I had something for you. But we never connected. Now you have to leave. Because this is prepared for my sons and daughters. And I gave you a chance, but you didn't want to know me. You didn't even really want to know much about me. Listen, you and I were the same thing. I'm not picking on the students. We hear what we want to hear and we remember what we want to remember. But even more critically, we aren't what we tell people we are just because we say it. We aren't. We are what we are because we are what we are, period. You just, you just are. And your actions reveal it. And our words give it away. Watch this. God's word speaks clearly and reveals vital truths time and time again to us that are so important for living this abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10, 10, for living a joy-filled life that Jesus promised to his followers. He said over and over again how much he and his father love us. In fact, the most famous verse in all the Bible says that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and his son was, I'm going to give you a different translation here, his son was broken and beaten and bled out on the cross so that something beautiful could be accomplished for you and I. See, we can't pay that price because we've sinned. He didn't, so he gave himself for you in your place so that something beautiful could be accomplished. And he talked about it. He says a lot of other things about you. He said he knew you before you were born. He said he knit you together in your mother's womb. That's Psalm 139. He knew everything about you. I think that comes in handy when we feel like we're worthless or we have no purpose in life to kind of go back to Psalm 139 and say, wait, God, you did say something about this. You're not silent. You did say something. You said you knit me together. All of us, you did know me. I have a purpose. You have spoken. It's not true that you're not speaking. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. He also promised never to leave or forsake us. That means a lot to me when I feel like everybody else has. I'm never alone because Jesus, who cannot lie, said he will never leave or forsake me. Again, look, look up here. We all go through hard times in life. Some of you, some of you, maybe this is your first time in Impact and you walked into here today, I have no idea what you're going through. You might be going through the hardest time of your life, period, right now. You might be right in the middle of it. And, and this is hard for you to even hear a lot of this. And some of you might be having just a great time. Things are really going well in your life right now. Well, give it time. Hard times come. Because this is a fallen world. Painful things will happen. And there will be times when you'll want to cry out to God. There's probably times when you already have. You'll want to scream out to him. And when you do, for many of you, for many of us, if we don't hear him answer our way, in our time, on our command, we'll be tempted to conclude that he doesn't care. Haven't you heard of that? Have you ever done it? Don't raise your hand. God, appear to me. Answer me now. See, nothing. You don't care. Is that a right conclusion? Many of us will conclude that God is aloof and, and cold and uncaring and silent. We may even yell at him in our pain and frustration. Say something if you're really there. If you care at all, do something, God. Anything. I'm hurting. Answer now or I will never trust you again. I've counseled people who are that upset. Say something or I'm giving up on you. This is it, God. I've done it. 
I've been mad at God like this before. I'm not, I'm not proud of it. I'm not... Even pastors have their moments. Especially in light of the fact that I seem to have had selective memory. I yell out and I just kind of forget. Oh, wait, wait maybe God did say something. You know, when you hear what you want to hear, remember only what you want to remember. In some tough times I've gone through, I've even blamed God. Because I forgot that he said he'd be there, and I feel all alone, so I blame him because he's not there. And why am I assuming he's not there? Because he's not there the way I want him to be. But, but does that mean he's not there? No, not at all. I've yelled at him for not saying something, for not caring, but you know what? I just chose not to remember that he had spoken to me many times in many ways, that he had said something over and over again in my life. He has been there for me, loved me, saved me, spoken to me. He speaks to us in many ways, but primarily, gang, most families have about eight of these sitting collecting dust on a shelf. And now with iPads and iPhones and Androids and Samsungs and everything, you have you we have Bibles. And this is the primary way that God speaks. If you want to hear God talk, all you have to do is open it or push a button. So it's not that he's not saying anything. He doesn't lie. It's that we're not listening. And this problem of blaming God and having selective hearing, it isn't unique to just you and me. The disciples had this all the time. It's almost comical if it wasn't so huge. In fact, coming to the end of the ministry, when this is coming to a head and all these bad things are happening and the disciples are living in fear, they're in the upper room and Jesus is talking to them and he can tell that they're nervous and scared and he's been saying over and over again, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and he will be scourged and he will be delivered over to death and he will die, but on the third day he will rise and it's tearing them apart because it's not what they expected. It's Good Friday, it's Easter. He's describing it before it happens. And they're very, very anguished over it. So he begins John 14, one of the most comforting chapters in all the Bible. But they're not getting it. And I want to share some of it with you. He says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't go down that path. It's not what you think. Believe in God. And then believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you this. I wouldn't lead you on or down this path. In fact, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take care of you and I'll bring you to myself that where I am, you may be there also. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. What's the way? And that must have pierced his heart because he probably thought, I told you the way over and over and over again for three years. Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And you won't get to the Father except through me. So I'll say it again. And he says it right in this chapter, John 14, 6. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. It'll be enough. And Jesus said to him, have I not been with you so long and still you don't know me, Philip? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Translation. Let me give, let me give you a little quick translation there. Philip, I've shown you the Father. Do you not remember what your brother Nathaniel said the very first day I met the two of you? Some of you go, well, I don't remember that. What are you talking about, Pastor? First chapter of John, verses 47 through 50. Jesus saw Nathaniel. That's Philip's brother. Coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip here called you over, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Now listen carefully. Philip's brother Nathaniel says, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of kings. Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree. You believe 
well, you'll see greater things than this. All right, so two years later, Jesus says, you don't know me? I'm the son of God. Remember when I first called you? Even your brother Nathaniel picked up on that just because I said I saw him sitting under a tree and now you've lost all that. You don't remember. I've said it over and over and you remember what you want to remember. Is it really that I've never said something to you, Philip? Or is it that you have not been listening? The truth is everywhere I've been there with you. The truth is, child, I will never give up on you. You know, if, if we just gather for Easter and think about the resurrection for 20, 30 minutes together and then go home unchanged, Easter would probably have to go down as a huge waste of time. It really is. There's a connection that must be made at Easter. It's the whole purpose of why we gather. And there's a connector question we all have to answer at Easter. I gave it to you earlier, and I bet some of you missed it. It was in Matthew 16, 15, but I'll give it to you again. It's when Jesus said to his disciples, yeah, okay, but who do you say that I am? I don't, right now, it doesn't matter what everybody's saying on the street. It matters right now for all of you. Stop. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Do you think I'm Elijah? Do you think I'm John the Baptist? You think I'm just a good teacher? Who do you say I am? Unless we connect the dots, another Easter will come and go and nothing will change. Unless there's a relational connection between you and the Savior this morning, you will never receive the gift of eternal life that he purchased on the cross and what we celebrate as Good Friday and sealed on Easter when he conquered death. This morning, it isn't who do people say that he is. It's who do you say that I am? What will almost certainly follow, if you do not answer that question, is another year of ups and downs, and a whole lot more downs than ups, I'm guessing, in your life, and you will drag your slightly more broken life to some church on Easter in 2015 and hear about the God-man who suffered and died and rose again, and you won't comprehend it again, and you won't see what any of that has to do with your life and your hurts and your pains. And what happens when some of the hurts and trials in your life, gang, aren't so JV, aren't so junior varsity? I mean, what happens when the real varsity pains come our way, the death of a loved one? What happens? The death of a, a relationship, the death of a friendship, the death of a marriage, when you're faced with your own mortality. What happens when, when the big varsity hurts and pain, and they will come. And we cry out to the same God we always heard about on Easter and maybe Christmas. And we cry out in pain and the pain of loss and loneliness and immortality. And, and he doesn't answer the right way. So we start making ultimatums. God, if you're real, I need you. God, heal this relationship or I'm done with you. God, save my job or I'm done praying because I don't see what good it does. God, restore this friendship or we're not friends. God, bring my wife back. Or why should I even bother talking to you again? God, heal me of this cancer. Or we're finished. God, say something. Or I'm giving up on you. Silence. Don't you care? I knew you didn't care. You wonder why I never go to church during the year except for this? You wonder why I don't pray? It's because you don't listen. 
All you have to do is talk. Do something, God. Show yourself. Say something. I'm ready to give you my whole life. You just have to do one thing my way. Why don't you talk? How sad, gang. How sad because he's been speaking all along. All along, he's been screaming, talking, lovingly pleading with you. How can we say you don't talk? For God so loved the world that you and me, he gave his only son. All you have to do is respond to what he's been saying and showing and his loving actions, and he'll give you the best gift ever. He'll adopt you as a son or daughter. But did we miss that message of love? Do you, do you hear that when I just said that verse, or did you hear some facts? If you listen closely this Easter, you will know that God's speaking to you. If you listen with your heart and not just your ears this Easter, you know he's saying, child, I love you. Be very silent. Child, I love you. I'll never give up on you. I will keep talking to you until you take your last breath. I won't make you answer, but I'll love you to the end. And you can stiff arm me or you can give up and embrace me. This is the part I let you do. Child, I love you. I love you. I've given my heart to you. I've given my life to you. Say something. Father, thank you for your expanding family, Lord. Thank you for the sons and daughters who came home this Easter, Lord. God, I pray that they would find boldness in the next five minutes to come up front. Let me talk to them. Lord, boldness in the next week as they come forward, either here or even at a church if they don't live here, and obediently be baptized and identified that way for you, Lord. Uh, that's how you grow your family, Lord. And we want to do it your way, not our way, Father. Help these people who connected today to grow more like you each day of their lives for the rest of their lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.